I think it's just really important to find the native peoples of your, where you live, figure out ways that you can give back and learn from them in an appropriate way without appropriation. Um, land acknowledgement is a great place to start. Like it's important to me to always say that I am on Cherokee land, also mm. Catawba land. Welcome to the Wild Herbs Podcast, where we unpack and uncover the healing properties of wild herbs so you can heal naturally with the plants beneath your feet. I am your host, April Puncelon, wild untamed plant lady, also a botanist and ethnobotanist and herbalist dedicated to teaching you how to heal with plants. If you want to learn edible and medicinal plants, you are in the right place, my friend. I am super excited today because I have with me Abby Artemisia, a dear friend and wonderful herbalist. She's the founder of The Wonder School and author of two amazing herbal books, The Herbal Handbook, and she also has the Wild Forage Life E Cookbook. So you're in for a real treat today. I'm glad you're listening. And so thank you, Abby, for being here. I appreciate your time. Oh, you're so welcome. It's such a pleasure to be here with you, April. Oh, thanks. So this podcast is new. When I thought about people to interview, you instantly came to my mind because you work predominantly with wild herbs and you're a botanist. And so you know your plants and my listeners can definitely benefit from hearing about your journey and also encouraging them to forage in the winter. And so when I was reading about your life journey with plants, I was taken back by how you took field botany at Miami University. And then that's when things clicked for you that you knew that you wanted to make this a, a life path, and that this was your calling. Can you tell my listeners about how that field botany class ignited the fire in you? Yeah, definitely. So I have some neurodivergence and that Miami University was the fifth college that I went to because for a lot of reasons, but one was that I couldn't find the program that I really liked. And so luckily it was like a miracle that field botany was the first class that I took because I immediately fell in love with it. Also the professor became my mentor and he also was the director of the botanical conservatory that I was also working at, at the school and just being able to be outside and touch the plants, meet them in person, I think is what did it for me like being outside in nature is my favorite thing and I'm really a kinesthetic learner so being able to do that I just fell in love oh I can run around the woods and do this for my job and were different wild herbs like herbal plants speaking to you at that point where you're learning about plants but you're also intrigued by their medicine yeah. For sure they were, but I came into that a lot of different ways and I'll try and really abridge that, but cause it's a very long story, but one of them is that I have my own tea business and I met an amazing herbal mentor in herbalist, Leslie Williams. And, um, so I had two incredible mentors, and, um, one was an herbalist, one was a botanist 
And then I was also healing from some car accidents that cause chronic pain, which I still deal with. And so I really like to, especially recently talk about that part of my story, because I think there is this misconception out there that foragers have to be like these super buff dudes who are like super able-bodied and have to be able to scale the side of mountains. And that's not true. Like it needs to be accessible for everyone. So that was a lot of my healing was just going out in the woods with field guides and teaching myself because nobody was teaching that where I was in Ohio at that time. And even with a botany degree, they weren't teaching what you do with the plants. There was one economic botany class and it was like, oh, you can use these trees for lumber and you can use these for paper and these to build ships, but there was like no talk of herbs or food. It blew my mind. So I went on to TA that class, that field botany class, the next three semesters and teach folks about that. And a lot of it I taught myself. For me, it really was just being out in the woods and bringing books, which I would not recommend for people like to toot our own horns. It is so much easier to have a teacher to teach you. Yeah, it is. And what was your first wild plant that you really connected with and saw a change in your body? Like the first wild plant you collected and and worked with and connected with that you think might have been a mentor too. Actually, I, gosh, there are so many. It's so hard to choose. And I would say the first one was not what most people would consider an herb. It was pawpaw. And that was just being out in the woods and creating a deep connection with the plant. And it is really prevalent um, in Ohio and where the place that I grew up and learned to forage And so I think any plant can be an herb in the way that you connect with it. And so for me, that plant was medicine. And interestingly, like I'm actually, I have somewhat of an allergy to pawpaws. I know some other folks who do, I think it's kind of common, but I always eat the first pawpaw. I'll eat like half of it while I'm in the woods and I can eat just a little bit and be okay. And then I'll spread the seeds. And so that's ritual for me. Mm. And so that's, that's medicine for me too. I love that. I love what you said that any camp, any plant can be an herb depending on your connection with it. That's mm-hmm. wisdom. That's so true. And it doesn't even have to be ingested. Just what you're talking about with your deep connection with pawpaw. Yep. Being a friend, being a friend of pawpaw. <laughs> I yeah. love it. I love that plant. It has a beautiful structure in the leaves and shape in the forest. I only would see it once in a while in Western North Carolina and the richest of richest woods. I can tell by listening to you. And of course, I know you that you have a deep connection and reverence for plants and the indigenous people, the indigenous people of North America. And for those of you who are listening, Abby transitioned her school to a nonprofit so she could serve indigenous communities and she's worked with the Cherokee. Your work, it's inspiring and it just gives me so much respect for you that you're doing this work with these communities. Can you tell us about how the tea business and the Wonder School ended up being 
a nonprofit and maybe if there was a moment that really made you feel like, yes, this is the right way for me to go. There's so many different directions I could take this, but um, I ended up shutting down my tea business because I started it to learn more about the plants, but I was actually ordering the plants from all over the world. And I wasn't in touch, like literally, I was not in touch with the plants. I wasn't touching them. So um, I got the opportunity to go back to school. So I did for botany. And while I was in school, I ended up serendipitously meeting some folks from the Shawnee tribe in Ohio and uh, ended up doing a project through school with them and learning the plants, working one-on-one with the chief there. And ever since then, I have serendipitously connected with the tribal communities wherever I am. And it has been amazing. It has been such a gift and a blessing because I always try to give back, but I get so much more than I give. And, um, you know, I just, the more I learned, the more I realized that one, like we were all indigenous somewhere, right? We all have a, a connection with plants somewhere and that's still in our DNA. And that is what my indigenous friends say as well. Like we're all indigenous to somewhere. And that a lot of the knowledge we have here in the U.S. was stolen from indigenous people and from enslaved and the descendants of enslaved people. And I think it's really important to decolonize herbalism. And there's a lot of different opinions on how that can be done, but I think part of it is bringing the voices of those people to the forefront and providing what I call herbal reparations. So in 2020, um, we all know what happened. COVID started and that was also serendipitously like a month before COVID started was when I befriended local members of the Cherokee community was also when I was adopted by a Cherokee granny. And if y'all want to know more about that, um, you can find my podcast at thewanderschool.com and check out the interviews with um, Tyson Sampson, who is a Cherokee friend and uh, co-teacher in our herb school. And then um, my granny, Amy Walker, and you can learn a lot more. Yeah, I, I connected with them and What happened was I started seeing people like, especially Linda Black Elk, a fellow herbalist who is up north, posting about how she and her husband were creating these bins of traditional foods and herbs, and then just foods and herbs that the native elders wanted because they didn't feel safe to leave their homes. And so they were creating these bins and hand delivering them like up to 250 miles away. And um, so I had this giant apothecary because I have this problem, this addiction where I like can't go out and see food that see plants that are food or medicine and not harvest them. And then they end up a part of my apothecary and I don't want them to just sit there. So I reached out to her and I was like, how can I get these things to you? And I started seeing other herbalists posting on Facebook, like, Hey, 
we have herbs, we want them to go to people who need them. How do we get them there? And then Black Lives Matter ramped up. And so I really wanted to get all of these medicines out to folks. And so I transitioned the Wander School into a nonprofit. And we mostly started sending out herbs from the apothecary here, but also making connections with other folks and getting them to send things to places and to donate as well, because that's helpful too. Mm -hmm. So now what we do is through our Wildcrafted Herb School course curriculum, which is an in-person herb school, which we can talk about more, we employ indigenous and other BIPOC, black indigenous people of color as teachers and pay them really well and make sure that folks get that specific knowledge. That's great. So you can involve, not only give them medicine, but get people to teach for the school. I think that's a great thing that you're doing in the Cherokee. That's the biggest federally recognized tribes in the Southeast, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're huge. Um, And it is, it's such a gift to be that close to that large of a tribal community. And so we also do things through the nonprofit, like go volunteer there and I'll take a group of volunteers and we'll go work in my granny's garden. And she's got this amazing multi-acre garden and it's on the land where the Cherokee people come from and where they're buried. And it, it's super special to go out there. And so we go and we help them grow their traditional crops. And we also go and we help make medicine from the wild herbs that they're gathering. And those then get given away to the tribe. I love that. Yeah, that's special. Keep medicine people together. All colors, all backgrounds. It's important. I mean, I talk about it as um, herbal reparations and right relationship. And so if you search those, there's a lot out there on that. I want to make my handout available to everyone. So that's kind of on my list, maybe for the next blog. But I also just published a blog on um, BIPOC resources. So BIPOC plant people. So folks don't know anyone in your area and you want to learn from and give back to folks. Those are some great ones to start with. I think it's just really important to find the native peoples mm-hmm. of your, where you live, figure out ways that you can give back and learn from them in an appropriate way without appropriation. Uh, land acknowledgement is a great place to start. Like it's important to me to always say that I am on Cherokee land, mm-hmm. also Catawba land. There was a tribe here called the Yuchi. And um, I try and always talk about the tribal communities in the present tense. I don't know if there's still Yuchi people here, but from what I've read, there aren't, but I don't know if I totally believe that. And also Creek folks probably in this area as well. We're also giving back by, I haven't even talked to you about this yet, but we're starting a free and by donation herbal clinic. And Mm. so that will serve low income and BIPOC folks in the Asheville area. So that's great. Good work. And so through working with the Cherokee, have they ever said anything to you about how people 
that aren't native to this land can acknowledge them or how they want us to show up for them? Sure. Yeah. I think one thing we've talked about is the idea that white people cannot decolonize herbalism. And so I hadn't really heard that before. And I think that that's like something I've thought about a lot recently. Like, is it possible? Is it not possible? And I think a lot of it is opinion, but it's always important to me when I hear an indigenous BIPOC person say those things to really listen. And um, so maybe I can't decolonize herbalism, but maybe I can make space for BIPOC people and maybe I can amplify their voices and maybe Mm. I can employ them to teach and all of these things. I think it's just important. There's a really good course out there, which I would highly recommend to any herbalist listening, which is called Woke Without the Work. And it's two hours. It's virtual. You can watch it whenever you want. It's very reasonably priced, created by BIPOC people for white people. Wow. um, For herbalists specifically. And it talks about like how you can have herb schools, how you can have herbal conferences, gatherings, and events, and do them in appropriate ways that are inclusive. So things that I hadn't necessarily thought of, like, yeah, it's awesome to have scholarships for your school and conference and things. But if you're not making sure that that person has transportation, if you're not making sure that they have lodging and food, like if you have a conference, like those things might make it inaccessible for that person to be there. So, and, and I mean, I think it's important on the flip side to think about like, I'm currently in a business course and it's like, it has to be accessible to us as teachers and hosts as well. Like we can only do so much. And so I think we can ask for, we can have things like sliding scale where people who can afford more can pay more. We can have things where people who can afford more can provide scholarships for other people or donate to scholarships because we have small businesses as well. We have families to provide for as well. And I've definitely gotten into the place where I've offered more than I can afford. So that's part of why we're a nonprofit so that we can get grants. So if anyone listening wants to donate to the work we're doing, please reach out or just check out the wanderschool.com. We have a donation button there. That's but, awesome. Yes. Donate to yeah. the Wonder School to keep it going a full steam. Thank you for teaching us how to be in right relation with the indigenous people. I am inspired and admire the work that you're doing and love that you're staying connected with the Cherokee. Is there, you know, something that you have learned about harvesting plants with more gratitude or anything that you've noticed that your foraging has changed a little bit from just being in their presence? Or I feel like the indigenous people have so much respect and reverence. They have so much respect and reverence for harvesting wild herbs. Just being in their presence and witnessing that connection, has that influenced your foraging? Yeah, definitely. In a lot of different ways. One thing that first came to mind was Sochan, which People may or may not know of that plant or may or may not know of it by that name. That's a Cherokee word. And the species is Rudbeckia liciniata. And it's also called green-headed coneflower or cut-leaf coneflower. 
And it has a pretty far range throughout the Eastern U.S. and Central U.S. And it's a very important food plant to the Cherokee. Also could be employed herbally. Similarly to, I've heard from a friend that it could be substituted for echinacea as an herb. And, but the Cherokee folks I know mostly cook the greens really well. And what I've learned from them about Sochan is that you, I think it's the way that I often harvest is just by taking out my pruners and clip, 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 just going along. Right. And what they talk about is touching each stem and harvesting each stem individually. And it really changes the way that I harvest in the way that I think about the plant, because it's a lot harder to disengage from what you're doing. It's really easy to just get in our heads, I think, and just like mindlessly do it and just harvest as much as we can. But this way you have to like really think about what you're doing, really connect to the plant and you might not collect as much and that's okay, mm-hmm. but you're really connecting with that plant and noticing more about it, like that it's hairy, that it looks a lot like other plants in the aster family, that it likes to grow by water, all of these things. So that's definitely one thing that I've noticed and just the way that they harvest to give things away. Mm. So that's really important to me, like never harvesting more than you need, but also harvesting enough that you have to give away to your friends, your loved ones and your community. Yes, that is important. I think as an herbalist is to be able to share when people start getting sick, mm-hmm. especially this time of year in the winter or fall going into winter. It's our busy time of year. It should be our busy time of year. <laughs> So you have an amazing love connection with spices. One of your favorite is spice bush, Lindera Benzoin. And you made me a spice that I love and that I savor that I still have some left. It's the spice bush blend and it's really good. Can you tell us about what made you want to start working with spice bush and a little bit about your connection with that plant? Yeah, sure. I do love spice bush so much. And I love her spice bush started when I was in Ohio because it is in a lot of abundance there. I don't feel like it's in as much abundance here, but it depends where you are, but it's still all over the the place. This is one of the first wild spices that I really started working with. I love that it's a shrub. I love that it's a native shrub. I often tell people to replace like the invasives in their yard with spice bush. So when I was in Ohio, there's a lot of bush honeysuckle. So that's when I would recommend to replace with spice bush here. There's a lot of privet. So it's good for replacing that one. Lots of other things as well, but it's also just beautiful to plant because it has those leaves that turn golden yellow in the fall. And then against the like fire hydrant red berries, the color of that tincture press behind me. Um, it's very red. I, I just love it. I love the berries because you can dry them. You have to dry them really well. You definitely do have to expose them to heat 
because of the volatile oils in there. That doesn't mean they're bad for you, but it does mean that they can go rancid pretty easily. I dry them really well and then grind the whole berry in a coffee grinder or herb grinder and um, substitute it for allspice, which is what was done with it mm -hmm. a long time ago when the spice trade was difficult. And then I love to add it to applesauce, pumpkin pie, anywhere. Mm. I make my own spice blend. It's in the Wild Forge Life cookbook that I have. And um, I think that's the one that you're talking about that I gave you. But I call it Spiceberry Spice because I like to call spice bushberry Spiceberry. And so it's basically pumpkin spice, but with spice bushberries substituted for the allspice. And it's so delicious. I put it in everything. I make lattes with it. Um, I would yeah. love that. A latte with it would be amazing. Yeah. And so do you put those berries in a dehydrator? Because when you're talking okay. about spice bush berries, I'm thinking of like the camphor fruit and the magnolia, which if you squeeze yeah. it, yeah, you have oils on there, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, with the dehydrator. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I put it in the dehydrator like I do most other things, like low and slow. I might turn up the temperature a little bit higher, like 110 to 115, because it is hard. It takes a little bit more heat than a leaf. So you could do it in your oven on the lowest setting if you had to, and then just grind it up. Do you think you could, cause I don't have a dehydrator. Do you think you could do it for six or seven hours on a low setting and then transfer it into like a dry, a drying screen or a rack? And that would be enough. I haven't actually experimented with it in an mm -hmm. oven. So I want you to do that. Okay. Know. I'll have to try. Okay, I have to try when I come to the mountains. Yeah, I would definitely um, do it and test it like every 30 to 60 minutes because you don't want to overdo it. You don't want mm -hmm. to, you know, Does it keep I, I don't know that it would really do much if you put them on a drying rack, unless they're like right next to a dehumidifier or like a heater or something. And do they stay red? Does it stay red or does it turn like a brown color? Yeah, it turns kind of like a brown to like a maroon brown. I love it that you're using the fruit of a bay species, Laura Ace, yeah. because I used the fruit of camphor the other day, just a little bit, not a lot, and my yeah. homemade chai tea, which you have a homemade Appalachian chai tea. But before we get into that, because I don't know if you're willing to share the recipe or some of the recipe with the listeners, but yeah. I would love to hear about what are the herbal actions you feel of the spice bush? And it has herbal properties similar to other warming herbs like ginger. Mm. So it's going to be warming and great for things like colds, coughs, flus, things like that. I did learn also a while back from the Peterson's guide to what the herbal, whatever they call that, the herbal guide, Peterson's herbal guide to northeastern or northern and eastern region by Stephen Foster and Jim Duke, who were both very dear friends of mine, that it's actually good for candida, which I never knew mm -hmm. before. I need to look back at that. And I haven't really experimented with it very much at all, but I really want to. 
So, but something else that I love about it is that it has been served at the beginning of council meetings during Cherokee council meetings to inspire friendship. So I served it to my friend, Becky Byer, fellow herbalist and co-founder of our herb school that we used to have called the Sassafras School. And she always remembers that. And she's, her company is Blood and Spice Bush. So it was oh, really nice. special. Yeah. And I love that because I had forgotten that. And she reminded me and I love, I really love when that happens when people tell me like how herbs are special to them. So it's, it's the best part of what I do. Yes. When I'm making tea out of spice bush, I make it with the twigs and I just prune them like you would prune any tree. And some people will throw the leaves into tea as well. I don't do that as often. I don't love the taste of it as much as the twigs. So I do decoct the twigs and in my Appalachian chai in the Wild Forge Life e-cookbook, I combine it with the twigs of Carolina also Mm -hmm. and the roots of sassafras. Nice. And so you are Carolina allspice. What is the Latin name of that plant? Carolina allspice is Calicanthus, Florida. Let me look at it. Oh, Calicanthus. Yeah. Yes. That is so cool. Cause Calicanthus is a plant that I always wanted to work with in the mountains, but I never did. That is so cool. So you use Calicanthus the twig. Yeah, it's actually Calicanthus floridus. Floridus. Yeah. And yes, so cool. I work with the twigs of both and I then the root of sassafras. And that's what I call Appalachian chai because it's got that warming effect and similar to the chai, the Indian chai that a lot of us know. That is amazing. The twigs of Calicanthus floridus, Carolina allspice, which I've never heard it called that. It's, I, I forget the common name that I learned about. Yeah, by. there's so many common names for it, actually. So sweet shrub. Yes, sweet shrub. Sweet bubby. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of common names, which of course, like we could go on and on about this being two botanists, but that is when knowing the Latin names does come in handy. Yes. I think if you're going to be an herbalist, if you are an herbalist or you want to be one, when you want to work with wild herbs, which you do, if you're listening to this podcast, then yeah, I highly, highly encourage you to learn the Latin names. I don't think there's any other way, really. I think you got to do it. I think it's important. <laughs> and I think it's also important to remember that there are indigenous people around the world who don't know a single Latin name. And yes. Super duper knowledgeable. That's really true. That's a good point. Cause my friend Nisant, he is learning indigenous taxonomy. Cool. Yeah. That's indigenous amazing. taxonomy, how they learn the names, but it's cool. Cause he talks about how they, a lot of the plants just have a song, not even a name, a song, which I think oh, is so wow. special. Yeah. I think that is important to remember because I'm trying to learn the Cherokee names for the plants. And it's also like coming back to what I've learned from the Cherokee people, like that's a really important thing because their names for the plants are all about right relationship. 
So the relationship the plant has to wildlife, to people, to all kinds of things. So when you start looking at it like that, it makes so much more sense. And it's so much easier to remember that the Cherokee name for bee balm means hummingbirds. They eat it. Then mm. like Monarda didyma, which is named after some dead white botanist, you know? So <laughs> what is the Cherokee name for Monarda didyma? The Cherokee name is Walela Unitsigisti. Walea, that's beautiful. Yeah, right? So yeah, it means hummingbirds, they eat it. And I think that's so much more helpful. (laughs) It is, it is. And it's, that sounds like a song too. Yeah, that is really cool. And I do think your connection obviously is more important than even the name, right? Yeah. Give it your own name. You can give the plant its own name. So spice bush. And so you're putting it in tea, Appalachian tea, and you're making the powder. Have you ever made like a warming oil or a body rub from it? Oh, I haven't, but that is a really great idea since it's related to camphor. Yeah. I'm going to think about that now. Dry the fruit. I always want to make an oil from Magnolia, the fruit, because it smells so good. I think it has the saffron, maybe a little bit of saffron in it. Mm-hmm. And there's just tons of it around here and yeah. no one's doing anything with it. And uh, there's a soap company in Georgia that extracts the oil from it. And I got an oil extractor and tried to extract the oil, but it did not get, turn out well. So I think probably what? my best bet is going to be to powder it. I don't know. I have to figure out how to extract that oil because yeah. I want to use it for the body. There's mm-hmm. just a plentiful. Yeah. The Grand Magnolia produces a plentiful, plentiful amount of that anti-inflammatory warming oil. So you never <laughs> stop foraging. Okay. You, and you forage in the winter. And mm-hmm. so many people will direct message me and be like, I, oh, you know, I'm thinking about learning how to forage, but it's winter time. So I, should I wait until the spring? Like I've had so many people ask me this question and I'm like, no, you can start in the winter. But I think for beginners, it's a little intimidating to think that you're going to be foraging in the winter and snow and that sort of thing, cold. So can you encourage my listeners, one, why you forage in the winter and what you are foraging in the winter? Yeah, for sure. And you just gave me an idea to write a blog about this because we have so much to talk about. There's not enough time for everything. I know. Um, Why I forage in the winter is because I get seasonal affective disorder and the only one of the few ways I'm able to keep my sanity in the winter is by going outside every single day. It's really important to me to be out amongst the plants, even when there's not a lot happening, but man, I was just out this morning on a walk with my dog and walking among the pines, holy cow, in our herb school course curriculum, Wildcrafted Herb School, one of my favorite parts is our medicine show at the end of the course. And everybody makes some kind of something from plants and they make enough to give to everybody else. Mm. And it is always so amazing to see what my students make. And one of my students feels this close connection to evergreens. And so she made this evergreen body oil 
which um, I'm going to show folks how to make. I do have a Patreon site and um, we're going to be doing that in our class on the 12th. If you're listening to this later, you can get the recording if you become a member. Yeah, I had no idea that evergreen oil was soothing to for muscle aches and it smells like an evergreen tree. And she was just talking about walking out among the pines. And now I notice that every time when I'm out, like just the soothing nature of that smell being mm-hmm. out amongst them. And there's this whole thing, like it cracks me up, honestly, with the whole fad that forest bathing has become because I'm like, seriously, like you're going to pay people a couple hundred dollars to go do this, like just walk in the woods. But I think it's important to remember that people need to be led, right? There's a lot of discomfort Mm. and fear often around going into the woods, especially for BIPOC people. And that's something to take seriously and people need someone to lead them often. But Mm. the whole forest bathing, like it is a very long tradition in Asian countries. And because it is true, like just being out in the woods around the plants and trees they give off phytochemicals that help our nervous systems. And so I really need that all year long, but especially in the winter. So that's why I do it. And just to keep a connection to the plants and to keep me from getting rusty with my botany and to keep having fresh plants to connect with and consume in in the best ways possible, in sustainable ways. So that's why I do it. What I forage in the winter, I made a list of six or seven things. And then I just kept thinking more. And I'm like, oh yeah, there are really so many more than I think of on a regular basis. But pine is really the first one that I came up with and the other other evergreens. So here that would be Eastern white pine is the most common one throughout the Eastern U.S., But there are a lot of pines around here and also fir and spruce. So this is a perfect time to be talking about this, right? Because it's almost Christmas. So people are getting their Christmas trees. So a good time to think about where you're buying your Christmas tree from, because if you can find one that hasn't been sprayed, then you can take those needles and you can make cool things out of them. So like in our Patreon class, we're going to be making infused salt and infused sugar and infused oil and sacred smoke bundles. So there's so many things you can do with those, but yeah, you can make oils with them and and salts and sugars and like just a million things. So besides wreaths, which just make us happy to be around and put off great smells and our Christmas trees, if you have one as well. So yeah, so many great things there and people used to, and some still do, eat the bark. It's more, I think it's more of a survival food, but you could make a flower out of it as well. And some other ones. So like, that's a great one because even if you're in a place that has feet of snow, you can still harvest the needles and they're actually way better. If you harvest them fresh, I really don't like to dry evergreen needles and they're around all year long. So that's super handy. Some other ones I harvest are rose hips which Mm -hmm. are available through the winter and we can find them even if there's snow on the ground, they've got tons of vitamin C and the seeds have a lot of vitamin E 
And so I will just eat them. I'll throw them into my tea. I add them to my elderberry elixir. I keep saying I'm going to make a skin oil with them. So lots of things you can do with rose hips. And we have invasive roses here, the multiflora rose. So I have easy access to those. There are several wild greens that I'll harvest that will live through the winter. The first one I always think about is wild onion, and it really will live through the coldest part of the winter here. And so one year I did a challenge and didn't buy any onions all winter long. And wow. Then, yeah. That's and impressive. Right. I know it was crazy and it's hard to dig them when the soil is frozen, but you can generally substitute the greens for onions in anything. But if you're feeling really hardy and strong, then you can use a digging knife and dig up the bulbs as well. And they're great. Also wild mustards. So the grains of wild mustards will come up sometimes again in the fall when it starts to get cold, but also pretty early in the spring, like pretty early, like before spring starts. So like late winter, depending on your climate, like where you are, they might stay around all winter long. And we have an invasive here, garlic mustard, which will regrow in the fall and die when it starts to get hot out. So it'll be around often all winter long. And then you're helping the habitat by harvesting an invasive. And it can be substituted for garlic. It tastes like garlic. It's a mustard green. You don't want to overdo it because it is a goitrogen. So it's not great for the thyroid or for folks who have issues like kidney issues, but I just say eat everything in moderation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There are some other wild greens in the mustard family, like wintercress and bittercress. And I really like those. They're just starting to pop back up again. Now there's chickweed, probably my favorite wild green. It's not bitter at all. So for folks who are opposed to bitter, it's not bitter at all. I love to make pesto with it and use that as a base and then add things like garlic mustard for flavoring and then add in some more bitter greens in moderation. So if somebody's eating it, who doesn't love bitters, they're still getting a little bit of bitter, but not so much. The wild mints sometimes will stick around and like mountain mint, things like that. I often see the mountain mints around even through the winter and they're stronger. They have like more thymol in them. So that's really a really good phytochemical that is antimicrobial. So stronger taste, but great to add to teas to help keep us well through the winter. And then another wild mustard that I love is that is, it used to be the dentaria genus, which made a lot more sense, but now it's the cardamine cardamine genus. And it, the roots on some of the species look like a little canine tooth and they taste like wild horseradish. So I call them wild horseradish sometimes. And a friend of mine will make wild wasabi with them. And it's just, it's so good. You could also like with the wild mustards, people will make mustard packs with them. So that's like an old timey thing where you 
take mustard seed and you make this pack that you put on your chest and you heat it up and it helps as an expectorant. So that's something you could do with the greens or the root, just being careful because sometimes they get really hot and you don't want to burn your (laughs) skin there, but it would just, it would be a little irritating, but there's, that's a lot. Yeah. I'm sure after we get off this call, think more and be like, dang, I should have thought of that one. (laughs) But yeah, and things too, like roots into the early winter. And then again, in the spring and like the barks, like the late winter, right? So like before spring is technically here, the roots are going to be vibrant again. And also the sap is going to start to flow, right? Like when we think about maple sap flowing, that's the best time to harvest twigs because the sap is flowing. And so everything is coming out of dormancy. So it's good to, to think about. Yes. I mean, winter foraging is super fun. Of course, in Charleston, it's, you know, it doesn't ever feel like true winter foraging like it would in the mountains, but I too tend to gravitate towards the evergreens in the winter. And I think they're, you know, their strength and durability and resiliency to survive the coldest temperatures gives us strength to get through the winter. And I was reading the other day that Fraser Fir survived the last ice age. That's why it's only on the mountaintops at 5,500 feet and above because it survived the ice age. That is a resilient plant and it has some strong oils. Yeah, I love that plant. But forest bathing, I want to go back to that a little bit. So the first time I heard about forest bathing, I had envisioned like, we're going to go in the water and we're going to forest bathe and we're going to dip in and maybe we're going to be naked. And I was like, wow, how are the parks putting this on? Like we're getting naked and going in the water and forest bathing. You know, this is my kind of forest bathing I'm thinking. And then I learned it's kind of like, I've never done one before, but you go into the woods and and you walk, but then what do you do? Do you know? You know, I was just looking looking this up because I was thinking about maybe offering some forest bathing to make things like feel a little bit more accessible for people. I know that there are certain what they call invitations. Mm -hmm. So it's like inviting people to do certain tasks while they're in the woods that help them connect. Because I think, especially in this American culture, right, we need to feel productive to make things feel worthwhile. So, you know, how I was actually thinking of adding a scavenger hunt to my herb school because just those things, like we need almost permission sometimes, right? So it's things like that. I mean, some could be just sitting in the woods. Some could be like, can you find this certain thing? Some could be, can you write this about what you're feeling or let's share about what we're feeling those kinds of things. I can imagine inviting people to lay down on the forest floor. When I went to the mountains, I had laid down on the forest floor and I felt Mm -hmm. so, it felt so healing because I'm, you know, pitta and vata, a lot of air and fire. And so the earth and the water, the yin to my yang. And I definitely felt so much better and nourished after that, you know, just being in the woods for two hours. Um, But when I did that, when I posted that on my Instagram, on a reel, people were like, you're just laying on the floor. What about spiders? What about this? What about all those (laughs) things? And I'm like, 
They don't want to mess with you. They just walk around you and leave. Yeah, I don't know. If they they might yeah. crawl over you, but they're not gonna sit there and bite you and pick at you. Yeah, it's true. I mean, we do need to be careful, of course, right? There's Lyme disease is on the rise, which is unfortunate, but there are things we can do, like herbal things to protect ourselves. But I think it is so important to have that body to ground connection. And I feel like it has been so healing for me physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And honestly, it's so crazy, but like the things that people, some of the things that people remember the most that are most meaningful to them from my plant walks and herb school are like when we go to a waterfall and just sit by the waterfall and that's it like that's the most meaningful thing to people Mm, I love that I remember when I was trying to get pregnant and I was in Boone or I was I knew I wanted to get pregnant but I had PCOS because I was drinking too much coffee Mm. And um, I laid on the earth and I just put my ovaries right on the earth and was just like, okay, yeah. the invitation just to let the healing come in. Yeah. So yeah, you can open that's, up. Yeah. That's what I did when I was in serious back pain um, with a herniated disc. I would just lay on the ground, sometimes on my stomach, sometimes on my back. And it's, it's also an indigenous practice. So I think it's really important. I mean, that's a lot of what I did when I was younger, you know, without any guidance. It just came naturally. Yeah. And if you think about dogs too, you know how they get on their back and they just wiggle around. A lot of times they do have a ball or they have something, but they love it. I mean, they absolutely love laying on the earth and getting on their back and it's such a joyous thing for them. So yeah, yeah, if you're listening to this after you get done listening and you're outside, make sure you lay on your back or lay on your belly and just be one with the earth and don't worry about the insects. You can check your body afterwards. I think that's the number one thing is just going in the bathroom and looking, but more times than not, I mean, whenever I lay on the earth without anything, I don't ever have any problems. Um, Well, thank you for sharing that. And hopefully, hopefully now the listeners are inspired to winter forage. And so I highly encourage you, if you're listening, to get out and forage this winter. And even if it's just a pine tree, and I shouldn't say even if it's just because the pine tree has so much medicine and you could spend a lifetime just studying and working and connecting with a pine tree. So that's an invitation from Abby. And so as we wrap up, I have a couple fast questions, like little fire drills. And I got this from Mason Hutchinson. He did this when he interviewed me and I think it's great. So what plant do you turn to when your daughter or you get the flu? If there was one plant. Good question. I will say super quickly, I think prevention is always the best medicine. Yeah, that's true. And so like, I have three mainstays that I turn to for that, that you always want to be careful about if you have autoimmune stuff, but elderberry syrup or elixir, fire cider and medicinal mushrooms. Mm. Those are my three go-tos like pretty much every single day. But then if we do get sick, I mean, bee balm is one that I just come back to over and over again because it's got a ton of Tymol, more Tymol than time, super antimicrobial good for so many things, coughs, colds, flus, fevers, etc. So I make it into tea. I uh, add it to cough syrup. I make an herbal steam out of it. So gargle with it. 
I have a sore throat. And if you don't have access to bee balm, then thyme is great. Or oregano. It's funny you say that because I found this really cool paper and Monarda is really closely related to oregano and thyme. Like on the yeah. phylogenetic tree, it's like oregano and thyme. And then Monarda is the oh. sister species or the outlier, yeah. you know, maybe it's older. I don't know. But I thought that was really cool yeah. to see that. That is really cool. And so what is your favorite wild mountain herb? This is so freaking hard. Just whatever one first comes to your mind. Right. The one that I came up with, which isn't only in the mountains, but it's a lot in the mountains is sassafras. Mm, I like yeah. it. I love it. It's mucilaginous. And so really soothing for the respiratory system. It's an alternative. So a great for early springtime when we're trying to clear out all the gunk and get our systems rebalanced. Yes. And what about your favorite wild mountain edible herb? Oh, goodness. Favorite wild mountain edible herb. There's too many. I know. <laughs> Which one do you relish? Yeah. Um... I guess let's just go with spice bush. Spice bush. I like it. Yeah, yeah. the tea. I mean, the Appalachian tea. I want to try that. Monarda is a great one. And you're smart to turn to that because it's pretty readily abundant and it's very large. But it's not a rare species. It's everywhere yeah. in most places across North America have at least one different type of Monarda species. And yeah, the spice bush, every time I see it now, I think about you Aww. and yeah, I, I like cherish my thing of spice. And then even the little packaging that you put it in, it was very thoughtful. Thank you so much for your time and sharing all your wisdom and knowledge with us. And how can my listeners stay in touch with you? What's the best way to connect with you? Sure. So the wanderschool.com wander with an A um is where you can find everything we're also on instagram instagram.com slash the wonder school same thing at facebook and youtube and patreon.com slash the wonder school we do a monthly class plus lots of other cool ongoing botanical education um we have a virtual botany class for herbalists and foragers especially that's called Botany Breakdown, which you can find at the Wander School website. And uh, registration is open right now for 2024 Wildcrafted Herb School. And that's in person. So if you want to go to an in-person school and work directly one-on-one -on -one with Abby, I highly, highly recommend it. Western North Carolina, Asheville, such a great place to be and uh, the best place to learn herbalism, hands down. <laughs> the best place. It is pretty great. And we just do it mm -hmm. one Friday and Saturday a month, April through September. So lots of folks travel to come for that. Nice. Yeah. And what a, what a fun place to travel to Asheville. Mm. Yeah. If you want to learn from Abby too, you can purchase her book. She has the herbal handbook, which I have and my bookshelf and I highly recommend it. It has really simple, nice herbal medicine making recipes and gets into how to make the medicine. And you did a great job with that book. Thanks. And also she has, you're welcome, the Wild Forage Life E 
cookbook, which you can buy right now as soon as the podcast is over. And is that, can you find a link to that on your website? Yeah, so it's on the website in the Wonder School shop, and there's two different ways you can get it. You can buy it by itself, or if you join us on Patreon, you'll actually get that as a part of your membership Mm -hmm. along with the expanded version that has more bonus recipes in it. Oh, I like that. That's awesome. So definitely check that out. Head to wonderschool.com. And thank you so much again for your time and teaching the listeners how to make Appalachian chai tea. I wish I lived in Asheville so I could do it, but next time I come in the fall, winter, I'll definitely be thinking about sustainably, ethically harvesting some, or maybe just head to your apothecary and we could swap some herbs. Thank you for your time. And I look forward to having you back on the show. Oh, thank you so much. Isn't Abby an inspiration? Check out the show notes because there's a link to Woke Without the Work, Botany Breakdown, and The Wonder School. And please share the show with any of your plant-loving buddies because it will really help this podcast grow and we can get more herbalists on the show. And also it will help our little business, Wild Herb Academy, grow and help support other herbalists that we get on the show and ethnobotanists and botanists, all plant people, right? We got to spread the love. All right, many blessings to you and thank you for tuning in. Peace.